There is simply too much debt in the world, way too much debt. In fact, if you calculate all of the debt on earth, public and private, it is three and a half times global GDP. That is three and a half times the value of all of the goods and services produced in all of the global economy. And just as global wealth is distributed in a very unequal way, where you have very wealthy countries largely concentrated in the global north and the west that got rich through colonialism, and the formerly colonized countries in the global south suffer from poverty. Well, just as the world is very unequal in terms of wealth, the debt in the world is also distributed very unequally. Many impoverished countries in the global south are trapped under what is effectively unpayable debt. And yet wealthy countries in the global north and the west use that debt in order to impose political demands and conditions on indebted countries in the global south acting in the interests of investors and big corporations despite the fact that they know that there is so much debt in the world that it cannot be paid off. Again, the total sum of debt is three and a half times the size of the world economy. Today I'm going to be talking about this very unequal international financial system. And this is a continuation of a previous video I did in part one, looking at the debt crises in the United States, where more and more average working people are unable to pay their credit card bills or auto loans, and in fact, defaults and delinquencies on consumer debt are at the highest level since the 2008 financial crash. At the same time, the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, has been aggressively raising interest rates, and this is fueling another debt crisis in terms of real estate. The value of real estate has been declining rapidly, especially commercial real estate, and this is exposing many banks, especially smaller and regional banks, to a serious crisis because such a big portion of their assets are held in the form of mortgages, of real estate loans, and as the value of that real estate plummets, the entire US banking system is in crisis and could potentially collapse. In fact, this year, in 2023, there have been three bank crashes, and those were three of the four largest bank crashes in US history. So if you wanna check out that previous video, I will link to it in the description below. But today I'm going to be talking about the debt crisis worldwide, and in particular in the countries of the global south, which represent more than 80% of the world population, the countries that used to be referred to as the third world today, the more popular term is global south, because most of them are in the south geographically. These are the countries that were colonized by the western powers, and still today, we can see how many of those oppressive policies are continuing in a kind of neo-colonial financial system in which many poor countries are trapped in what is essentially unpayable debt. And never forget that that debt is someone else's wealth. That is to say that much of this debt owed by countries in the global south is owed in the form of bonds and other securities that are held as assets by rich people and investors in the global north. 
Now, I want to begin this analysis today looking at a report published at the beginning of this year by the leading financial services firm, S&P Global. It found that global debt has hit a record of $300 trillion, which is 349% of global gross domestic product, that is GDP. What does that mean? That means that all of the debt in the world is three and a half times the size of the global economy. GDP consists of all of the goods and services produced in an economy. Well, this is the entire world. So this debt is fundamentally unpayable. There is $37,500 of average debt for each person in the world. And yet all of the economies of the world taken together only produce around $12,000 per person. So once again, this is debt cannot be paid. And as if that were not already enough, in 2022, in response to a crisis in consumer price inflation, the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, and other central banks began raising interest rates. So that, the S&P Global points out, that makes debt servicing even more difficult, and that means that they estimate there will be $3 trillion more in interest expenses. That is $380 paid more in interest per person for every single person on earth. And I really need to emphasize that this is a global average. So we can see how this is a problem with the structure of international financial institutions themselves. This is not simply a problem of individual countries. Now, it's very easy to simply blame individual countries. And this is what Western economists often do. They say, you know, this government is corrupt. This government took on too much debt and was irresponsible. But that argument misses the forest for the trees. When you look at the global average, you can see that this is a systemic problem. So the way to solve this global systemic problem is to actually change the global system, the financial system, the way the, the world economy is organized, and not simply blame isolated cases of corruption or government incompetence. And once again, we should never forget that one person's debt is another person's asset that they profit from. And by the way, not all forms of debt are the same. When we hear debt being discussed in the corporate media, we often hear government debt. There is concern that governments have too much debt. But this is not the only sector where there is a massive amount of debt. And yes, government debt has skyrocketed. In 2007, before the great financial crash of 2008 and 2009, on a global average, government debt represented 58% of GDP. As of 2020, that skyrocketed to 102%. So governments, on average around the world, have slightly more debt than their entire economy produces in one year. And that figure has stayed pretty static as of the mid-2022. But we also see huge amounts of debt in other sectors. So for instance, household debt has stayed pretty stable. It has slightly increased around 64%, nearly two-thirds of GDP. That is, again, that is household debt as a percentage of the entire economy of GDP. And then if you look at financial corporate debt, once again, we see 85% 
to GDP ratio. That is a massive debt to GDP ratio. And other forms of corporations, non-financial corporations, are also swimming in debt, representing nearly 100% of GDP. And once again, this is the global average. We're not looking at specific countries here. So how can all of this debt be paid off? Well, the answer is it cannot be paid off. This is why economists like Michael Hudson and others have called for a global debt jubilee. We need to have significant forgiveness of debts, especially of poor countries. And this brings me back to the point that I've stressed here several times, and I'm going to talk about it in further detail because it's almost never mentioned in mainstream media coverage of the debate surrounding debt. And that is that one person's debt is another person's asset. I've said that a few times here. Well, what do I mean? Well, in order to understand, we have to look at the balance sheet of a bank. Anywhere you go in the world, a bank has two sides of its balance sheet. It has the asset side and the liability side. Now, if you think about it, if you open an account at the bank and you deposit your money in the bank, that money is your asset, but it's actually a liability that the bank holds because the bank has to pay you that money. They have to guarantee that when you withdraw your money, they can give that money to you. But what banks actually do is they lend out your deposits because if you just put money in the bank account with inflation over time, it's actually going to decrease in value. So banks invest that money in interest-bearing assets, in things like government debt, which are bonds, U.S. Treasury bonds or other government bonds. They invest it in other, in stocks, in other assets that have interest. And over time, they will increase in value and the bank will make profit and will still be able to pay back all of the liabilities. So if you go to the bank and you take a loan from the bank, that loan becomes an asset of the bank and it becomes your liability because you have to pay it back to the bank. Well, government debt works largely the same, at least government debt that is denominated in a foreign currency, which you cannot print, usually the dollar. And most poor countries in the global south end up taking debt in dollars because no one wants to buy their debt denominated in their local currency. So this brings us to a difficult situation. You have to ask yourself, if you are the government in a poor country in the global south and you want to build a hospital, you want to build a highway, you want to make bridges and schools, how are you going to pay for these very important yet very expensive infrastructure projects? Where are you going to get the money from? Well, you really have two options. One, you can either increase tax revenue, that is tax your people more, or two, you can take on debt. Now, increasing taxation sounds like a good solution, but the problem is if you're a very poor country, your people are poor, and the more you tax them, the less money they have. You might not even be able to tax them because so many people work in the informal sector, in the informal economy. They don't have a steady paycheck. They need that money to feed their families. And furthermore, if you tax them too much, you'll decrease economic activity in the overall economy, and that could lead to recession. It's a kind of austerity policy. So instead, many poor countries are really forced to take on debt. Now, the modern monetary theorists, MMT economists, would point out that technically, the government could simply print 
the national currency, which it has control over, and then it could pay people, pay workers to build that infrastructure. And as long as it is productive work that contributes to the economy, it wouldn't necessarily be very inflationary. However, there's a problem with this argument. Many very poor countries in the global south have chronic current account deficits. That means they import much more than they export. So if you need to import a lot of raw materials and metals and energy and technology and machines and machine parts and all of that, you need to find a way to get access to a foreign currency, usually dollars, which is what you're going to use to import that. But obviously, just printing more money to do that is not a solution because if you just print more money and sell it on the foreign exchange market for dollars, what that does is it depreciates the value of your currency against the dollar and leads to even further inflation. So yes, the MMT argument does have some value in the sense that the government can provide jobs for workers if those jobs are productive and lead to economic growth. But it's not a panacea. If you're a poor country with a chronic current account deficit, printing money is not a solution. It's not a panacea. Many governments basically have no option but to take on debt. And because many of these poor countries tend to have weak currencies, and very few foreign investors would be willing to hold assets in those currencies, many of these governments also basically have no choice but to issue sovereign government debt denominated in a foreign currency, that is to sell what are known as euro bonds. Now they're called euro bonds, but they're not necessarily denominated in euros, that's just what they're called. And in many cases what actually happens is that these poor countries, these governments end up selling debt that is government bonds denominated in dollars and they cannot print dollars. So for them, for these governments that have euro bonds, their debt is like the debt that you or I have with a bank, like a mortgage or a car loan. They cannot print the currency they need to pay it off. They have to find a way to get access to that foreign currency in order to pay off the debt that is owed to usually a foreign investor. And who are those foreign investors? Well, often they're investment funds. And in many cases, they are foreign investment funds managing the wealth of rich capitalists in the global north, in the countries that colonize the global south. And often we are talking about investment funds based on Wall Street or based in the city of London. And some of these funds are so notorious they're known as vulture funds because they invest in the debt of poor countries in the global south because they know that if a poor country has a history of defaulting on its debt, of being unable to pay in the past, there's not going to be much demand for that debt, which means that interest rates are going to be very high. So if they buy it, they can profit, they can make a killing. So in international capital markets, the sovereign government bonds of countries like, for instance, Argentina and others often have very high interest rates and you have these vulture funds on Wall Street that take the wealth of millionaires and billionaires who leave their wealth with them to invest that wealth and they use that to buy the debt of poor countries in the global south, again, many of which were colonized by the capitalist countries where these rich people are located in, where these investors are located in. So they are mirroring this colonial relationship and then when the country is unable to service that debt and it defaults on the debt, 
Well, the vulture funds and these wealthy investors in the United States, they use the U.S. justice system to try to force poor countries in the global south to pay them exorbitant profits. This is exactly what happened in Argentina. I'm not exaggerating here. This is exactly what happened with Argentina's debt. Billionaire-owned vulture funds, infamously linked to people like, for instance, Paul Singer, the billionaire oligarch known as the vulture, they used the U.S. judicial system to sue Argentina in court to force it to pay. And when I say that these poor countries are being forced to pay out exorbitant profits, I mean, we're talking about cases in which countries like Argentina are forced to pay out values that are dozens of times higher than the original face value on the bond that was bought by these investors and these vulture funds. So their profits are thousands of percent of their original investment. And meanwhile, they're imposing essentially on these countries austerity policies or you know institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank are imposing austerity policies, forcing poor governments to cut social spending that help their people so these wealthy capitalists in the United States can make thousands of times of profit on this debt. Once again, this is, this is directly mirroring the colonial relationship of hundreds of years ago. But of course, we're in the 21st century and this is still happening all over. I want to spend a few moments here looking at a report that was published this July by the United Nations. It is called A World of Debt, A Growing Burden to Global Prosperity. It shows that global public debt has reached colossal levels of $92 trillion. That is a five-fold increase since 2000 when it was around $17 trillion. And in the same time period, global GDP, all of the goods and services produced in the world economy, only increased by three times. So this is a report specifically looking at public debt, government debt. This UN report is not looking at private debt of households and corporations, which when you factor that in, you can see that, again, the, the statistics are even more shocking. We're not talking about 92 trillion, we're talking about 300 trillion. But once again, this is looking at public debt. And we can see how mathematically, it is impossible for this debt to be paid off if the debt grows faster than the economy grows. Now, the United Nations report points out that around 30% of global public debt is owed by developing countries, largely poor countries in the global south that were colonized. So if you look at this graph, it makes it seem like, well, actually it's not that big of a deal because that means that around 70% is owed, in, in, of public debt that is, is owed by the wealthy first world countries in the global north. But this can be a bit misleading because we have to look at the percentage of debt as a share of the global economy. And the next graph in the UN report shows this very clearly. It shows that public debt is growing significantly faster in the developing world, that is, in global south countries. So when you look at the debt, the public, that is government debt, of the developed countries, the rich first world colonizing nations, Compared to 2010, their, debt, their public debt has increased by about 1.5 times, so 150%. But if you look at the debt of the developing countries, the 
global south nations that were colonized from 2010 until 2022 their public debt has increased by about 3.2 times so about 320 percent and the un report puts this very well it says inequality is embedded in the international financial architecture and this gets back to the point that i stressed earlier which is that you miss the forest for the trees if you only focus on individual countries' problems with being over-indebted or corruption or bad governance. Because if you average out all the countries in the world, you can see this steady trend. This is a consistent trend. So just focusing on one country's flaws is a distraction from the problems in the way the global economy is organized, in the international financial architecture itself. The United Nations points out that the debt burden is heavier for the global south due to external debts, which I'll talk about in a bit, cascading crises like the pandemic, like climate change, the cost of living crisis, that is inflation, which is largely due to the war in Ukraine and the Western sanctions on Russia. And furthermore, another big factor is high and rising borrowing costs, which is also directly related to the Federal Reserve's interest policy and the hegemony of the US dollar. Now, a big reason for this is because more and more countries in the global south are borrowing from private creditors on international capital markets. And in the neoliberal era of capitalism, countries are constantly told that the best way to borrow money is not through a multilateral institution, an international bank, rather to, to sell sovereign bonds in international capital markets. And this means that more and more countries in the global south are being indebted to private creditors. In the case of the global south as a whole, developing countries, in 2010, less than half of their public debt was owed to private creditors, 47%. And as of 2021, it is now 62% of their public debt that is owed to private creditors that is largely investment funds, vulture funds, other billionaires and millionaires, largely in the West, on Wall Street, in the city of London, other financial centers. This problem is especially severe in Asia, where in 2010, 39% of public debt was owed to private creditors, and as of 2021, it was 63%. And in Latin America, nearly three quarters, 74%, of public debt is owed to private creditors. And once again, this debt of governments in Latin America and the Caribbean, formerly colonized countries that are relatively poor, that debt is held as the wealth of rich people in the colonizing countries largely. And we constantly hear that the United States government, for instance, has too much debt. But what's not mentioned is that despite the fact that rich imperialist countries often have more debt than developing countries, but when poor developing countries try to sell those sovereign bonds in international capital markets, the average bond yields are much higher. So the average bond yield in Germany is 1.5%. In the US, it's around 3%. That's the interest that the government pays on its debt. In Asia, it's 6%, nearly 7%. In Latin America, it's nearly 8%. And in Africa, the average bond yield is nearly 12%. So once again, this is 
entirely unequal and simply saying, well, this is how the free market sets the rates. That is obfuscating the fundamental problems of the structural inequality in the global financial system, which is directly related to the legacy of colonialism. The way the United Nations puts this, countries are facing an impossible choice. Are they going to service their debt? Or are they going to serve people? Are they going to provide services like healthcare and education and infrastructure? And the answer to that question is sadly that more and more countries are paying off their debt rather than helping their people. The number of countries in the global south of developing nations that spend more than 10% of their public revenues on interest payments on, on this debt has increased from 29 countries in 2010 to 54 countries as of 2020. And as of 2022, in the aftermath of the pandemic, it has slightly decreased, but still it's at 50 countries, which is a massive increase from 29 countries in 2010 to 50 countries in 2022. And the share of government revenue in developing countries that goes to paying off public debt has increased in 2010, it was 4.2% of revenue. And as of 2022, it was nearly 7% of public revenue going off to paying this debt. The United Nations points out that the interest payments on this debt are growing faster than any other public expenditures. So the share of the revenues that governments in the Global South make that goes to paying off interest on debt has been increasing faster than increasing in spending on healthcare, on education, on other forms of productive investment, which is important, of course, to grow the economy. And the United Nations points out people pay the price. Some regions of the world are paying more interest on their debt than they are spending on education and healthcare. In the case of Africa, the average country, and again, this is not looking at individual countries, this is regions on average. The average country in Africa spends more on interest on its debt than it spends on healthcare and education. In Asia, when you exclude China from the data, the average government spends more on interest on its debt than it spends on healthcare. And in Latin America and the Caribbean, the average government spends more on the interest payments on its debt then it spends on investment, public investment to help grow the economy and build good infrastructure. The United Nations reports that 3.3 billion people live in countries that spend more on interest on debt than on education or healthcare. And 3.3 billion people is more than 40% of the world population of roughly 8 billion. We're talking about two fifths of people on earth. Finally, the United Nations concludes this report pointing out that inequality is embedded in the international financial architecture. This must change. This is exactly why countries in the Global South have been trying to develop alternatives to the international financial institutions that have trapped them in this kind of debt. I'm talking about the Bretton Woods system, and in particular, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank. These are the financial institutions that were created in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference toward the end of World War II. That was the same conference that established the US dollar as the global reserve currency. And the United States is the only country on earth that has veto power in the World Bank and in the IMF. 
and the United States has used these institutions as political weapons, imposing political conditionalities on countries, primarily global south countries, forcing them to impose neoliberal economic reforms, right-wing shock therapy, mass privatizations of public assets, cutting healthcare spending, cutting education spending, deregulating markets, allowing Western capital to flood in and gobble up local industry and destroy infant industries that could be competitors, or to force countries' currencies to be freely floating, which in many cases leads to a significant depreciation in the value of that currency against other currencies, which destroys the purchasing power of workers in in small, poor countries in the global south. So the United States has a long history of using these financial institutions that are ostensibly international and multilateral to advance its political and economic interests. That is why countries have been trying to develop alternatives, like the BRICS bloc created the New Development Bank. China created the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. The countries of Latin America created the Banco del Sur, the Bank of the South. And there, are, there is a lot of interest around the world in creating these kinds of new alternative financial institutions, especially regional banks, that can help global South countries develop without being trapped in debt owed to wealthy capitalists on Wall Street or in the city of London and other Western financial centers. This also partially explains why so many countries in the global south are trying to de-dollarize, seeking alternatives to the U.S. currency, the hegemonic global reserve currency, because Washington weaponizes its currency through the imposition of illegal unilateral sanctions, because the United States prevents countries from accessing some of these international financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. It cuts off banks from the swift interbank messaging system. And also because as the U.S. Federal Reserve, the central bank, has been aggressively raising interest rates since 2022, this makes it even more expensive for many poor countries that have their debt denominated in dollars to service that debt. And another very significant factor about this that we should keep in mind is that in the wealthy countries, largely in the global north, the countries that got rich by colonizing the third world, those countries almost always hold their, their debt, their sovereign debt, in the form of the currencies that they can print. So, for instance, the United States has huge amounts of debt, that's true, but that is debt that is denominated in U.S. dollars. If the U.S. government wanted to, it could print large amounts of dollars to pay off that debt. Now, that would lead to inflation, of course, but they could pay it off. Japan, for instance, also has massive amounts of debt. In fact, Japan has significantly more debt as a share of its economy than the United States. Japan's public debt to GDP ratio is 263%, whereas the US public debt to GDP ratio is 123%. And yet we almost never hear people in the media say, oh no, Japan is not gonna be able to pay off its debt. It's gonna be in crisis. It's gonna be in permanent recession. Because why is that? Because the vast majority of Japan's debt is denominated in yen, in the Japanese currency, which Japan's central bank can print. And in fact, over half of Japan's government bonds, its government debt, are actually owned by the government itself, with more than 90% of its debt held by investors inside the country. But for poor countries in the global south that were colonized by the rich countries in the north, almost all of their debt usually 
is owed in other currencies, especially dollars. The dollar is the global reserve currency, so it means that many countries, when they need to take on debt to build an infrastructure project or invest in, in something, then the country often will sell a sovereign government bond, but that will be known as a euro bond, not because it's sold in euros, but because it's sold in a foreign currency. It's denominated usually in the dollar. So Argentina cannot print dollars to pay off its government bonds that are owned by vulture funds on Wall Street. Ghana is another example of this. The group, the Committee for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt, published a report that showed that Ghana's public debt as a percentage of GDP is nearly 100%, which of course is a lot, but keep in mind that the US and Japan have even higher debt to GDP ratios. And yet the difference is that Ghana's debt is largely denominated in US dollars, which obviously Ghana cannot print. And furthermore, private lenders, that is again, investment funds on Wall Street and others, they're responsible for 60% of the face value of Ghana's external debt, but because of the high interest rates on those bonds, that in fact represents 75% of the total debt payments that Ghana makes. And the report noted that these lenders will not take any haircuts without a fight. The Ghanaian government is imposing severe spending cuts on public services, the few that exist. So austerity is being imposed on average working people in Ghana. And yet foreign wealthy capitalists are refusing to lose any of the profits that they're making on buying this debt that Ghana sold. And Ghana is unable to simply print money to pay it off. This is a textbook example of the kind of neo-colonial relationship that we see that is very common in the global financial system today. Now, I want to conclude this analysis today by looking at a very important academic article that was published by two renowned economists. It is called Chronicles of Debt Crises Foretold. It was published by Anish Chaudhry, who's a Bangladeshi economist, and Jomo Kwame Sundaram, known popularly simply as Jomo, who is a well-known Malaysian development economist. Jomo actually previously served as Assistant Secretary General for Economic Development at the United Nations for a decade. Now, in this article, these economists point out that there are debt crises looming in developing countries, and these have been exacerbated by a series of developments, including declining net foreign exchange reserves. I'll talk about what that means. And also, many governments have turned toward risky forms of borrowing from international capital markets. I talked about that a little bit. And the rising interest rates have created very serious problems. And this means that there are urgently needed international reforms. Now, this report that these economists published is nearly 40 pages long. I'm not going to go through all of it because this video is already long enough today, but I'm going to go through some of the main highlights. And the article in the abstract summarizes some of the main points, noting that in many developing countries, debt crises are looming, and this has been exacerbated by a decline in net foreign exchange earnings with weakening currencies, and many governments turn toward riskier forms of borrowing from international capital markets and the interest rate hikes 
in the United States and other Western countries have only made this problem even worse. And there is an urgent need for reform of the international financial system. The article notes that in 2022, there was a perfect storm of economic problems, including threats of stagflation, which is the rise of inflation and stagnation at the same time, where, whereas many times in history, when there is a lot of inflation, there often is economic growth. But if you don't have economic growth and you have stagnation while you have inflation, this is something that the United States saw and other Western economies saw in the 1970s leading into the 80s, which originally led to the infamous Volcker shock in which the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, under the leadership of then chairman Paul Volcker, aggressively raised interest rates, which trapped a lot of global South countries in debt because as interest rates skyrocketed, it became impossible for them to service their debts. And we see something similar happen today. And at the same time, you still have this problem of inflation leading to increasing costs of food and energy, which is devastating households, especially the poor. And this means that poverty reduction programs have grinded to a halt. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, that is UNCTAD, which has often been a space for development economists in the global south, has warned of severe debt distress and noted in particular that countries that engaged in neoliberal economic reforms, that is floating their exchange rates, opening their capital accounts, integrating into international financial markets, those are the countries that are the most unstable at this moment and are facing the biggest threats. And furthermore, many developing countries which borrow in foreign currencies, again, this is a point that I stressed, which means that their debt is not denominated in their own local currency. This means that they were very vulnerable to external shocks like the drop in commodity prices, and it means that they have to get sufficient foreign exchange. So they have to export their products or their services in their economy and get paid in dollars or euros or whatever in order to pay off that debt that they owe. But as commodity prices have fallen and as their currencies have depreciated against the currencies of wealthy imperialist countries like the dollar or the euro, it makes it even more difficult for them to pay off this debt. The report describes this as exchange rate volatility, which is again when if you're a country like the Argentine peso or the Brazilian real and your currency fluctuates against the so-called hard currencies of the wealthy colonizing countries like the dollar, well, as your currency depreciates, it raises import costs. It makes it more expensive for countries in the global south to import technology, machine parts, oil, gas, other commodities. And it also makes it more difficult for these countries to pay off their debt obligations, which are denominated in foreign currencies. And at the same time, making this even worse in this perfect storm, as they describe it, you also see capital flight because as central banks like in the United States or the European Central Bank or the Bank of England, as they have raised interest rates, this has meant that investors, foreign investors, have often withdrawn their capital from investments in the global south, looking for higher returns in investments in the West. And that leads to a capital flight in the global south. And furthermore, reduced export earnings 
And once again, another factor in this perfect storm consists of the supply chain disruptions due, the due not only to the pandemic, by the way, but also to the Ukraine war and sanctions. The article is careful to point out that the Western sanctions on Russia have raised import costs. And meanwhile, in the global south, many developing economies face insufficient aid and financial inflows. It's increasingly difficult for them to raise funds, including to finance development projects, which means instead they often accept the very onerous commercial terms in international financial markets by selling bonds to these vulture funds on Wall Street. And what this shows is that low and middle income countries have become increasingly indebted to private creditors, especially bondholders. In 2010, low and middle income countries, these are the global South nations largely, about 46% of their public debt was owed to private creditors, largely bondholders. And as of 2022, that figure has increased to 61%. In low-income countries, the share of public debt owed to private creditors increased from 5% in 2010 to 21% in 2021. The article points out that many times these are riskier debt contracts with these private bondholders, and they also have higher interest rates and shorter maturities. And what this means is that when countries face exogenous shocks, that is shocks from outside of the system, things like natural disasters due to climate change getting worse, thing, things like epidemics or geopolitical instability like the Western proxy war against Russia, the new Cold War on China, the Western sanctions. This means that external debt burdens can quickly become unsustainable. This has led to a toxic mix and these economists warn this could be a recipe for widespread debt crises that could be worse than the third world debt crises of the 1980s. They insist that these, this means that we need urgent measures to change the international financial system. Debt buybacks like we saw in the 1980s are not enough. Commercial credit today is far greater. And unlike in the 1980s, where much of this debt was owned by banks in commercial banks in the US and Britain. Today, it's much more widespread. So it's unlikely that the US or British governments are going to engage in these kinds of debt buybacks that will help end the crisis. It's a much deeper, much more severe crisis. This article also looks at Sri Lanka's debt crisis and shows that it is not because of China. We've heard a lot of propaganda in the Western media trying to blame China, but in reality, a look at Sri Lanka's official debt composition confirms that the shift in developing countries' debt composition to riskier commercial borrowings, that is, on international capital markets like Wall Street, for instance, at higher interest rates and with shorter maturities is a major cause of debt unsustainability. And they note that Sri Lanka's external debt dynamics have changed significantly. Commercial debt only accounted for 2.5% of its foreign loans in 2004. But by 2021, commercial debt represented almost 60% of Sri Lanka's debt. Borrowing from capital markets by issuing sovereign bonds thus ensured that Sri Lanka's debt was unsustainable. And in fact, speaking of the dollar, 
The US dollar denominated debt in Sri Lanka increased from 36% in 2012 to 65% in 2019. That is to say that two thirds of Sri Lanka's debt is owed in dollars. Can you guess what percent of Sri Lanka's debt is owed in the Chinese currency, the renminbi? Only 2%. And that figure stayed static while the percentage of debt owed in dollars nearly doubled. So once again, this is not because of China. The article is very clear. It says that politically driven attention to Chinese lending has detracted from urgently needed international and national measures to deal with the looming debt crises. So this is simply not because of China. The Western narrative of so-called Chinese debt trap diplomacy is a distraction from the fact that many countries in the global south, like Sri Lanka, owe their debt to foreign bondholders. By the way, this article also points out that another factor in the fact that so many countries in the global south are suffering from this unsustainable, unpayable debt is also because of the false promises, the broken promises of wealthy Western countries. And they note that over half a century ago, rich countries promised 0.7% of their gross national income to be spent on development aid. And yet the, the wealthy OECD countries have not reached even half the promised amount. So they say that 50 years of unkept promises equated to $5.7 trillion in aid by 2020 that the wealthy colonizing countries owe the formerly colonized countries in the global south. That's not even in the form of reparations, which would be infinitely more. It is in the money that they promised that they would pay them and they have refused to pay them. And this obviously makes it very difficult for these global south countries to invest, for instance, in things like renewable energy and infrastructure to deal with climate change. Now, another reason for this is that the international financial institutions dominated by the West have also pressured countries in the global South to borrow money on international capital markets to sell bonds, government bonds. And this is interesting because it shows how the problem of debt in the global South has shifted in the 1980s and 90s going into the 2000s. A lot of these countries held debt to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. They owed that debt to them. And the IMF and the World Bank infamously imposed the Washington Consensus, the right-wing neoliberal economic policies like mass privatizations and deregulations and cutting social spending. And so what happened is many Global South countries became very suspicious, rightfully, of the Bretton Woods institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. So instead of borrowing money from those institutions, many countries instead simply borrowed on international capital markets from bondholders, from capitalists. And what that meant is that when these countries sell sovereign bonds in international capital markets, they don't have the same kind of stringent conditions imposed upon them, the conditionalities like political reforms, economic reforms. But it also means that when they, when they borrow money, that they have to pay higher interest rates and they often have short-term maturities for that debt. And by the way, the IMF and the World Bank also bear responsibility for this. As the article points out, the World Bank and donors claim to be mobilizing private finance for development ends. Thus, 
Donors and international financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank now use scarce official finance to instead promote public-private partnerships, and these public-private partnerships make dubious contributions to sustainable development outcomes, especially to poverty reduction or the promotion of equity and health. So borrowing from private in investors does not actually help countries to fight poverty and promote equality and invest in healthcare. And what this also points out is that public-private partnerships being promoted by the World Bank and the IMF create similar long-term obligations like the debt obligation that these countries, the debt servicing that these countries had, the problem they had before that they, when they were borrowing directly from the IMF and the World Bank. This article notes that in the past, the least developed countries, that is the poorest countries, they should be referred to as the most exploited, the most colonized countries, mainly borrowed on concessional terms from multilateral financiers like the World Bank and the IMF and bilaterally from donors. When they say concessional, they also mean that those loans were often made below market value or at least not at market value like they are in international capital markets. However, they had stringent conditions. And this is referring to the infamous structural adjustment, the neoliberal shock therapy imposed by the IMF and the World Bank. However, since the great financial crash of 2008 and 2009, non-concessional loans have grown in significance. That is, loans that are made at market rates with higher rates of interest. And what this means is that more and more countries in the global south have been borrowing from poorly regulated and unaccountable private commercial bond markets. And this explains crises like we've seen in Sri Lanka and also, by the way, Argentina. Furthermore, the policy advice from donors, from the IMF, from other so-called multilateral development banks like the World Bank, which again are dominated by Washington, they have always favored market-based private sector solutions. So this is neoliberal dogma once again. They have opposed countries in the global south engaging in industrial policy to help develop their own infant industries to challenge the monopolistic corporations of the West. They have also opposed development policies in the global south. Instead, Poor, formerly colonized countries have been encouraged by the IMF, by the World Bank, by Western countries to become and remain export-oriented primary commodity or raw material producers. So this is basically just reinforcing the very same neo-colonial system that existed before, whereas the British Empire colonized India and stole the resources from India in the form of taxation. And now what happens is these countries in the global north the colonizing countries, they force the same neo-colonial relationship on their former colonies, but instead they say, well, you're not colonized, but you simply have to export your raw materials, your agricultural products, your copper, your oil, your gas, your lithium. You have to export that to us at very low rates, and we're not going to pay you fair for it. We're going to overthrow any government that tries to nationalize those resources. We're going to make sure that our corporations get a huge percentage of the proceeds that they make much of the revenue of and the profits of selling those natural resources. And we're going to try to prevent global south countries from developing their own industries to challenge our industries. So by telling countries in the global south, the only way to get rich is simply exporting primary commodities and raw materials. Well, that's not a way that a country can actually develop. So it's trapping them permanently 
in this neo-colonial relationship. And of course, at the same time, this article notes that these same institutions have encouraged tax cuts with less direct, direct taxation of corporations, especially from abroad, claiming this is necessary to att attract foreign direct investment. The, foreign, the, the World Bank constantly promotes, promotes this idea that you have to cut taxes on corporations in the global south in order to attract the investment of those corporations. But this article notes that this is, this is entirely ideologically driven. It's not driven by evidence. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The reality is that these tax cuts on corporations have failed to incentivize FDI, foreign direct investment, but they have reduced government revenue and the ability of governments to service their debt and to improve government spending. Even the International Monetary Fund admitted that, quote, tax incentives generally rank low in investment climate surveys in low-income countries, and it admits that, quote, their fiscal costs can be high, reducing opportunities for much-needed public spending. Furthermore, the article notes that tax evasion and avoidance by transnational corporations has contributed to further loss of revenues in low and middle income countries, it actually, the, the refusal by corporations to pay taxes results in a loss of revenues representing five to 8% of GDP in countries like Guyana, Chad, Guinea, Zambia, and Pakistan. Whereas in the wealthy imperialist countries like Germany and France, tax evasion by transnational corporations only represents losses of around 0.6 to 1% of GDP. So once again, we see wealthy imperialist countries telling global south countries to engage in these neoliberal economic policies, and it's completely ideological. It does not help them to grow their economies. It actually hurts them. Now, as this article starts wrapping up, it, it criticizes popular Western media narratives, and it notes that most discussion of developing country debt ignores the primary causes. And instead, we constantly hear Western governments and media outlets and financial institutions blame corruption and poor governance. And we also see geopolitical discourses that are politically motivated, and the West blames China and the so-called China debt trap diplomacy. Western observers, including the IMF and the World Bank, accuse Chinese lenders of lacking transparency. However, independent studies have debunked the China so-called debt trap narrative. Even a report by Chatham House, which is a, a, a British uh, think tank, which is funded by Western governments. It's completely mainstream, totally linked to the British government. They found that Sri Lanka's undeniable debt distress was mainly due to excessive borrowing from Western-dominated capital markets, not Chinese banks. Although China has become a major creditor of many African nations, the scale of its lending has actually been decreasing since 2016, and the evidence to date suggests that China has not engaged in deliberate debt trap diplomacy in the Pacific. In fact, China announced it was forgiving 23 interest-free loans to 17 African countries in 2022. Western governments criticize China for insisting that the IMF and World Bank and other multilateral de development banks should also engage in debt relief because they constantly tell China to unilaterally forgive the debt that countries 
have with China. But then China says, why should we be the only ones who forgive our debt? Why won't the IMF and the World Bank forgive that the debt that Global South countries owe them? Why is the burden of debt forgiveness always only on China's shoulders? And this article points out that China's insistence that multilateral development banks like the IMF and the World Bank must also forgive debt is supported by other countries in the global south, including many African countries. And it notes that South Africa's president, Silver Maposa, has called for the same thing. This article stresses that discourses such as China's alleged debt trap diplomacy or blaming countries in the global south for a lack of good governance and corruption, this all detracts, distracts from urgently needed measures to avert and alleviate debt distress. And they talk about ways to kind of solve some of these problems and the, the urgent need for reforming the international financial system. In particular, they note that private bond markets have changed significantly since the debt crisis of the 1980s. And today, private creditors are in many cases more varied and even more powerful than commercial banks. They stress that International financial institutions should never be used to support the interests of creditor countries. Never. And that's always what they do. The IMF and the World Bank always act on behalf of the wealthy imperialist creditor countries. So they call for a series of different policies, and they note that some of those policies have been blocked by the U.S. government, including the Donald Trump administration. Again, I've gone very long with this. This report is nearly 40 pages long. I mean, it really, there's so much it goes into. It's an incredible report. They, they have a lot of proposals, including creating new multilateral frameworks for sovereign debt restructuring, allowing Global South countries to have a seat at the table for developing international tax rules, allowing developing countries to have a leading role at the UN. So reforming and restructuring the United Nations, uh, you know, delays in debt repayments, also securing more tax revenue, having central banks not be independent like uh, the neoliberal orthodoxy, but instead focused on developmental policies, coordinating fiscal and monetary policies, all of these things together. I'm going to conclude here because I've gone way longer than I was planning today. And I've stressed this point again and again, but I think you can see very clearly from the reports that I've looked at today from the United Nations, from S&P Global, the leading global financial services company, U.S. financial services company, from looking at two well-world-renowned development economists, you can see very clearly that, yes, there is way too much debt in the world. And in particular, countries in the global south are trapped in debt that is fundamentally unjust. And it reflects the same kind of colonial system that we had before. And today it is a neo-colonial system. And that debt needs to be forgiven because the debt of many, much of the debt of these global South countries is actually held as the wealth of rich capitalist oligarchs in the global North. And as the economist Michael Hudson has called for, the world desperately needs a debt jubilee. This debt needs to be forgiven because it cannot be paid. Mathematically, it cannot be paid. Global debt is once again, three and a half times the size of the global economy. This is an, a completely irrational, insane system and it has to be fundamentally changed. On that note, I'm going to conclude. 
I'm Ben Norton. This is Geopolitical Economy Report. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe to help promote this material in the algorithm. And every video that we do is also released as an audio-only podcast version if you prefer listening. And if you like the work that we do here, please consider supporting us. You can go to geopoliticaleconomy.com support, and there are several ways you can donate. The best way is you can become a patron over at patreon.com geopoliticaleconomy. We are entirely independent. We do not have any institutional support. We do not have any large donors. We rely entirely on small donations from viewers and listeners like you. So once again, I want to thank you for joining me today in this extremely long episode. See you next time.